0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Traceability Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Edwards. Today, we are so very fortunate to have Dr. Jenny C. Stevens with us. Dr. Stevens is the director of the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs and the Dean's Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. Her research and teaching and engagement focus on social justice, feminist, and anti-racist perspectives into climate and energy resilience. And she's the author of a book uh, published last year called Diversifying Powers, Why We Need Anti-Racist Feminist Leadership on Climate and Energy. So Dr. Jenny Stevens, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tracy. Great to be on your program. At Traceability Podcast, we, we uh, are very interested in, in careers, so I'd like to take you back a little bit and kind of um, explore what made diversity a value for you how, and how did that lead you in your career choices?
1: Yeah, so I um, have a training and background in environmental science and engineering. So I have a technical background and I always knew I was interested in the Social and political dimensions of science and technology. So, and it's really through my through my own experience as a woman in a male dominated field to really pay attention to and acknowledge how diversity impacts not just um, you know those who have the opportunity to engage in whatever kind of positions or issues that we're working on, but also how diversity or a lack of diversity. Really constrains how people are thinking about innovation and the issues that any organization or or area is is exploring. So, I, as you mentioned, I have kind of an academic. Uh, most of my career has been in academia. Um, that that happened partly not because I wanted to be a professor, but I had a passion for environmentalism, and um, after my undergraduate degree, I actually followed my partner who was going to get a PhD in science and ended up in a PhD program, uh, which is, you know, kind of led me then into this academic track. So it's it's interesting how the, you know, the personal and the professional are, are always linked. And um, I would say also that my experiences in academia and in as I said, mostly working on climate and energy issues. Energy in particular is a very male-dominated field. Uh, realizing, like, I'd go to energy conferences where there would only be a handful of women in the room, and we'd all, you know, notice each other and maybe have lunch together and, and build collaborations and friendships. And, and and then we, I started realizing that Oh, all the women in the room are actually thinking about some of these issues in different ways, right? And, and why is that? One of the things that I've really, you know, come to experience and, and understand is that when women, people of color and indigenous folks and others who've been historically excluded from leadership positions um, are are given an opportunity or, or take the opportunity to be in these spaces, we bring very different life experiences and we also bring different perceptions of risk um, and different priorities and different ways of interacting. You know, when you think about the climate crisis and issues of sustainability in um, the environment diversity is so important because we've been missing opportunities for engaging and uh, with folks and fo- really prioritizing what people need and what communities need um, with too much of a technocratic, technology-focused approach, um, I would say. So So that's one of the messages um, in, in my book.
0: Well, so how has that been sort of taking the interdisciplinary approach because it, on one hand you're you're very engaged in the social sciences and on the other hand, you're very engaged in the physical sciences. And so what has that been like sort of trying to mold them together into a, a interdisciplinary effort there?
1: Yeah, really great question. I think I I must've recognized somehow early on that having a, a more technical science engineering background Will will would be valuable and kind of open up doors for me. So I was quite intent on uh, studying and and kind of having the credentials in in science and engineering. But then once I was in that space, I realized how how narrow. Some of that is. And, and really, if you don't integrate the social and the political dimensions of the science and engineering you're doing, and so many of my mentors, it, it, I, I actually was kind of disappointed to see, you know, senior scientists say, oh, well, I can't really get involved in that because I'm not an expert in that, or, or that's not really my area. Because uh, academic scientists are very often kind of conditioned to just stay focused on what, the narrow thing that they're an expert in, and not speak up and engage and contribute in, in more broad ways. So, I knew that that wasn't for me. But I knew that I wanted to engage more broadly and have a different kind of impact. It's not to say that the narrow scientific, um, you know, contributions are not very important. It's just not not what I was drawn to. So, when I finished my PhD, I knew I wanted to broaden rather than get more narrow and that's where i was drawn to more policy related work thinking about energy energy policy and the, and the te- technologies and and not just the specific technology but how technology has been put forward as kind of sometimes you know this perception that we have a very technologically optimistic society right that um, technology will save us and and with the climate crisis you know there's some dangerous, and I think really risky uh, trends toward funding technological innovation, but not funding enough social innovation like and social change. And, and when we don't focus on the social sciences and social dimensions of, our, of these areas, we're actually missing the social justice implications. And that's how too many of our energy and climate policies have actually been exacerbating inequities and disparities be- inadvertently because people haven't been thinking about how those technologies um, are being deployed. For example, you know, if you think about the policies to incentivize people putting solar on their rooftops, it was mostly, it has been mostly well-off single-family homes that could take advantage of those incentives and they get a big financial benefit and then they get solar on their roof. And then for decades ahead, they're going to have free solar energy, right? And, and those same opportunities have not been given to lower-income households, so too many of our energy policies have actually been exacerbating these inequities rather than the opposite is what we, what the opportunity that we have is to, to do the opposite, that our investments to uh, move society toward a more renewable-based future and sustainable future, uh, those investments could and should be really prioritized directly to the um, lower-income people families, and communities that have been underinvested in for too long?
0: Well, when I think of, I mean, my personal experience um, growing up, I grew up along the Mississippi River and the Columbia River, and very much part of the hydroelectric dam phase of environmentalism kind of thing. And nowadays, that approach is definitely changing, right, as far as dams and hydroelectric power and, and sort of being um, I'm not sure what the phrase would be, but, but sort of the removal of dams um, in favor of more indigenous ways of, of taking care of the environment and and that kind of thing. So would that be sort of an example of of the type of thing that you're uh, type of uh, things that you're researching?
1: Absolutely. Those kinds of,
0: um, you know, the, the lack of
1: consideration for what whole communities are how people and communities are impacted by some of the technologies that have been um, put forth is 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 exactly the kind of omission that we have we see over and over again, like in so many examples, uh, particularly with fossil fuels some really important work by the NAACP's environmental and climate justice program has revealed the degree to which um, fossil fuel industry who have been strategically investing and trying to continue and perpetuate fossil fuels, despite all the health harms and the environmental harms of, of continuing to rely on fossil fuels. But those industries, Industries and representatives from um, the fossil fuel sector have been really kind of manipulating Black communities, in particular, in in throughout the country, investing uh, in kind of tactics to get sub- community support for f- in, in, increased fossil fuel infrastructure projects, even when those projects are actually. End up being harmful for those communities, and so there. There, I mean, there's all kinds of, of, of examples of of this, and uh, really how energy infrastructure has been, you know, really contributing to health disparities as well as other other kinds of injustices.
0: You know, it seems seems to me that in large technical or organizations that there's very much a profit motive as well as a self-interest motive because of that profit motive. So as as you're trying to bring different groups together, how are you able to, or what are some techniques you use for helping people to understand that there's sort of a shared common interest uh, instead of a, a particular um, narrower self-interest? Yes. Yeah, so um,
1: one of the ways uh, to kind of elevate this is to talk about the polluter elite which is is refers to kind of the corporate interests and fossil fuel interests and and others that have been really resisting a transformation toward a more sustainable society because they've been profiting over it and really for decades many have been strategically investing to confuse us about the climate crisis and the dangers of fossil fuels and then also to minimize to to encourage us to be mistrustful of government regulations that are designed to protect us. And also investing to, um, they have been investing to also reduce workers' rights. And, and you know, it used to be shareholder culture, um, I mean, corporate culture, there's been a shift in corporate culture. It used to be that corporate culture uh, was prioritizing, often proud of how well they treated their employees, whereas there's been a, this shift In um, toward a lot uh, more of a prioritizing shareholder interests and then actually trying to minimize how much you had to support your workers. Right. And and that has is has really led to um, this disenfranchisement and disempowering and and Um, And I don't mean specifically about voting, but just about, you know, this and the widening wealth and income gap in the in in the United States and in other countries as well. So one of the ways to you asked about, you know, how to um, help folks understand that this isn't good for anybody. Right. Like it's it's not just about, oh, I'm I'm going to make more money if if I you know, keep doing this. You know, I think the pandemic has really helped us see how, you know, it, our, our whole society suffers when we don't have adequate healthcare infrastructure, when we don't have, we have so many people who are really struggling and, and don't have adequate resources to ha- live in a, in a, to maintain their own well-being, right? Like it, it it's 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 actually a negative for all of us. And so I'm I'm optimistic um you know that the what we've learned dur- during this very hard time and with so many people suffering and it has actually you know there's possibility for that to ha- to really inform future um priorities so that we recognize that we need to prioritize the public good, right? Rather than corporate interests. And, and I think we need to come to terms with and acknowledge um, how much corporate interests have been influencing our policies and our priorities as a society in ways that some of us, you know, we've kind of gotten used to. And so we're kind of complacent to it, but we need to kind of reclaim that and say, you know, we we can do better than this. And we should as a country, I mean, I'm speaking about the United States here, as a country with the resources and the um, potential that we have, we we should have such better infrastructure. And I don't mean just physical infrastructure, roads and bridges. I mean, healthcare infrastructure, educational infrastructure, uh, social infrastructure in terms of allowing people to have time to take care of themselves, take care of their loved ones, um, rather than the way we've evolved now into this um, society where so many people have to work double shifts, right? Just to cover the rent. And that is not does not lead to um, a healthy society. And we are seeing some of the, the impacts of, of that now. And so I, I'm, again, that's why this is a disruptive time we're in right now. And there's also some reason for, for hope and for kind of a collective action that we can all take in, in this time and and not just try to go back to the way things were, right? Because the way things were, were not actually very good for most most people.
0: Right, definitely. Um, as we've seen, not, not sustainable. So in the last year, we've had a real confluence of all of these topics sort of coming together at the same time. We've had the Black Lives Matter movement happening. We've had the Me Too movement happening. We've had uh, energy events like what happened in the South here just a few weeks ago. So do you find that, that sort of with all of that happening at once is a more stressful trying to get people to come together, or are you seeing a willingness to get people to come together?
1: There's actually been quite a lot of new coalition building, um, you know, because a lot of the different challenges that, that you mentioned, we have this, you know, multiple intersecting crises, right, that are keep uh, kind of unfolding in front of us. Um, the pandemic, the Extreme weather and and climate disruptions, systemic racism, and all of its forms of kind of these structural and legacy issues that continue to um, be you know really evident and 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 being perpetuated in ways that are just so so troubling. And then we also have a housing crisis, and uh, you know the economic crisis that's part of the some of it is connected to the pandemic but some of it was there before right it, it particularly with these growing inequities in uh, wealth and income so I think people are and that's what I see in the climate and environmental movement is that people are realizing like oh we you know it these are issues are all connected right and it's it is. When we actually are in solidarity and build multiracial, multigenerational, and multi-issue coalitions, that we can actually advocate for the systemic changes that are needed. Because none of these issues, none of these interconnected crises, can be solved with like band-aid solutions, right? Um, they they require kind of a more fundamental shift uh, in our priorities and, and how we invest in support each other and allocate resources. And so that recognition is, is kind of, is, is, is coming more to the mainstream, I think. Um, So I'm optimistic. I'm also really um, inspired by some of the new leadership, particularly more younger people, And people of color and more women getting into politics and and coming up with new uh, policies that are really link these issues together. So, for example, in the chapter one of my book uh, is actually called Growing the Squad. And the squad are these four junior congresswomen that, um, you know, came on the national stage uh, two and a half years ago and have transformed the conversations about in so many policy issues in particularly with respect to um climate and energy they have been so innovative by linking climate and energy with economic justice and jobs uh, and linking climate and energy with housing and the housing crisis and and advocating for big investments in public housing because we have a um so much housing insecurity in the United States and it's getting worse uh, with the pandemic. And then also linking climate and energy with the structural racism of our country and also criminal justice issues. So I think there's a lot of creative and inspiring policy work going on right now that we can get behind and, and engage with in, in new ways. Um, here I'm in Massachusetts, where I my congresswoman is uh, Representative Ayanna Presley, um, who has been one of the the leaders, one of the members of the squad, who has just um, you know she speaks truth to power and, and has an urgency about the way she's talked, the way she presents and and really prioritizes these issues and say. This is unacceptable, right? We don't have to accept this and we can no longer accept that this is the way um, our society is. And And um, that's just really
0: powerful and inspiring and exciting. So do you have any tips that you could share as far as bringing, for lack of a better term, sort of both sides of the aisle together to sort of have that, that common goal? Because it seems to me that we're still Pretty far apart on on some of these these things. We're we're starting to come together, but we're still pretty far apart. So, do you have any tips for bringing us closer together? Once we are trying to engage, so one of the things that I think
1: sometimes works, you know, as you said, we're we're quite a divided society right now. But I think obviously listening to each other and not villainizing each other is, is fundamental um, and understanding that everybody is, you know, doing the best they can and, and trying to navigate under this, these increasingly diff- difficult situa- uh, conditions, right. And that's kind of across the board. And if we acknowledge that and then realize how people's political views result from those experiences, right. So, um, and I think validating, acknowledging where people are coming from. But another another piece here is, I guess I will uh, mention Mary Robinson, uh, the former president of Ireland. And she's, she's a, an international climate justice leader. And she has really emphasized the point that... You know, if you put a people first approach, like what do people need? These ideas don't seem so radical, right? Or um, and 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 kind of helping people see how kind of dysfunctional are are so many things, so many of our policies and our and our um, governmental systems have become because of the power of the corporate interests and a lot of you know are we don't have people collectively looking out for the public good. Um, and some people are actually quite explicit about that, right? <laughs> Holding people accountable in a respectful way and pointing to the investments and the possibilities for when we do trust our government and when we do allow and, and, and support government to invest in communities that have been underinvested in. And when we do... Again, I think that's where there is potential again right now with the pandemic. You know, there's we see um, an, an expectation of huge public spending and investment, right? Like it's necessary to recover from where we are. And even though there's some saying, you know, we can't we shouldn't spend this much or or but people can actually see through those arguments and see that if we don't spend the money, it's worse right? Like if we don't invest in what's needed to help people, the future for everyone will be actually worse. So that same kind of logic can be used when we think about the climate crisis and investing in the transformation away from fossil fuels toward a more renewable-based future. Um, if we don't invest in, in this transition that needs to happen everything will be harder for everyone, right? Like even if the polluter elite continue to make some money for a few more years by delaying, that's not good for the public. And it just slows things down and makes it harder. So the long, so that there's that, these kinds of um, demonstrating how, making proactive investments in changing the way things are so that things are better is is actually good for everyone, and it it doesn't necessarily have to be so divisive. And so I think that's one way to think about that.
0: Sort of a follow-up question to that is, as individuals and as organizations, what are some small wins that can help us either to be more enlightened uh, about climate and diversity or can help us take take a step towards um, a more equal uh, opportunity
1: yeah so a couple things to, to think about here one is to think about all of us as leaders in different in our own ways right like this book is about my book is about um, leadership and specifically I talk about anti-racist feminist leadership. When I talk about anti-racist feminist leadership, it's it's actually a broad invitation to, for leaders to be, to all of us to be thinking about the power dynamics and the legacy of different, each of us and our individual kind of positioning in society and, and what power we have and what structural issues limit our, our power, right? And, and anti-racist feminist leadership is um, anybody, regardless of your race or your religion or culture or your um, gender identity can embrace anti-racist feminist leadership because it's really about acknowledging those power dynamics and the legacy of harm that has been done, right? And then trying to resist it at every step along the way, right? And and I think that's a key thing that we can all embrace as well, is that this is the, the kinds of transformations that we we would like to see or, or many people are are advocating for are really systemic changes. So it includes everything from small, um, you know, our, our, how we interact with each other in the workplace or in our families or in our communities to like, these bigger structural things. Um, but we, we need for our own consciousness and our own learning in kind of a, racial justice journey or racial equity journey, and and also in our thinking and learning about climate and and all these things, we can be thinking about these issues and trying to integrate them into everything we do, right, at all of the different levels. And there's real opportunity there for us to be demonstrating, I guess, modeling, right, and and inter- living our lives in ways that um, demonstrate these, that what we'd like um, to see. So I think in that sense, there are opportunities for all of us, both as individually and in our organizations to question what we are, the norms, right? Because it's actually about, for real transformative change, you need disruption, right? You need to stop what you're doing and assuming that that's the best way to do things and actually do things differently. And so disruption as a form of, of change, and then kind of be acknowledging we can either be perpetuating um, the crises that we are, that we see in front of us, or we can be trying to resist the, what contributes to those and, and disrupt the processes and policies and, and, and priorities that are reinforcing. So, and when I, when I, when I, when i'm talking about these things i'm thinking both in terms of the climate crisis and racial justice and kind of connecting those in in ways that we can as i said be intentionally disrupting the norms and i mean i think one thing that's been really powerful for me is acknowledging that if you're if you ignore these issues and think oh i don't have time to deal with this or i'm not you know, I, I that that's, that's, I'm not part of that. You're actually unintentionally contributing because you're not part of the, sh- the shift that needs to happen. So, so that's an open invitation to ever, to everybody to really, you know, spend some time to consider based on each of our own positionality, our own pl- place and communities that we're part of, what what can we do to elevate and um, expand and have impact to, and not be on the sidelines? Because again, when you're on the sidelines, you're actually um, contributing. When we're talking about systems change, uh, because you're reinforcing the the normal, right the the status quo. So so yeah, that I think those are some of the ideas it, with regard to that.
0: Yeah, you know, and I always want to be be part of a solution. And like you say, I, I think it's um having that mindset where you do want to be part of the solution and then just ensuring that you're continuing to hold yourself accountable to that and, and have those meaningful conversations. So um, wrapping up, I, I sort of wanted to get a feel for um, where do you think this is all going in, say, the next five or ten years? And and does it leave you optimistic or not? I I am optimistic. I mean, I tend to
1: be optimistic and, and try to see the opportunities in in most situations. But I really do think there is some changes happening that are are quite positive. If you look at the Biden Harris administration, obviously it's early days. Um, but there's been some real initial commitments and in particular with some specific um, appointments and hires. Uh, one of my own colleagues and, and friends, uh, Shalanda Baker, she, who was a, prof- a professor at Northeastern with me in the, um, she's at a joint appointment in the law school and the policy school. And she has been sworn in as the deputy director for energy justice at the Department of Energy and the Department of Energy never before had that position focused on energy justice and her role is is to design and implement the commitment that the campaign made that 40% of the investments in climate energy would go to frontline communities, communities that have been underinvested in for too long. And so, you know, that the intention and the, um, some key people have been put in place to do things quite differently. I also do see some progress and, and optimism, you know, climate, the Climate change has also become such a divisive and partisan issue, right? Which is disappointing and, and obviously difficult for the for progress to be made. But in it seems like currently, with some of the some of the current strategy looks like with the Biden Harris administration is to integrate investments in renewable energy and workforce training and jobs related to renewable energy into kind of pandemic recovery. Uh, policy, right? Um, And not necessarily focus it as a separate initiative, right? Integration. And this is what integration of these different crises, as we were talking about before, um, is probably, uh, you know, arguably the way to move Forward on multiple things at once, right, and have a larger impact. So, so there's also some evidence that that's the strategy that the Biden-Harris administration is is taking on 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 some of these issues as well. So that also is is as a positive sign. I do think that really important point is our elections and voting, um, and you know. I, in the end of the book, I actually talk about why don't we have an assumption that we have a hundred percent participation in elections? Like you know, like we uh, we're so far from that. And you know, there's these new attempts to even further restrict voter, voting rights. But I think representation and making sure that everybody does is have access to vote is is really important and and um I think these efforts to restrict voting is really troublesome but I also feel like it's kind of people are seeing through it and like realizing what what's going on here and how that's not good for democracy so again that I hope I'm I'm optimistic that we will be able to you know continue to prioritize that as a Fundamental part for to address any of these issues because if we if we want change we have to have better representation and and hear the people's voice to, so that we can focus on what people want not what the elite and the corporate interests want.
0: Completely agree with you and and uh, this has been such a fascinating and fun conversation for me. Before we go, sort of, what's next for you? Where is your research taking you?
1: Yeah, so um, it's been. Great opportunity writing this book and then being able to have conversations like this with uh, all kinds of folks about the linkages and the intersections and and the new coalitions that are that are emerging. I think I'm, you know, continuing with uh, research on kind of how to connect this transformation away from fossil fuels toward a renewable based future with the other social issues um, as a university professor. I'm also very involved in thinking about the role of higher education and and education in general and how higher education, our educational systems are supposed to be opportunity and and opening up um, opportunities for folks. Um, And we have a lot of possibilities in in education to improve access and um, make sure we're not uh, further exacerbating inequities and, and disparities. So, I think my next, a lot of my current initiatives and future uh, are really, I'm going to be thinking more about education and how our educational systems uh, also need to be transformed to better contribute toward a more equitable and, and sustainable future.
0: Well, I'm really excited to hear what your results uh, on that are because I, I agree with you. I think uh, education. Uh, the educational system as it is today is is sounds like is pretty ripe for some disruption. Yeah. So <laughs> well thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fun and and just really interesting conversation for me and and so I really thank you for being here today.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, Tracy. And I will just say, if anyone's interested in uh, buying my book, all the author proceeds for the book go to NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program to advance their great work. So um, thank you so much for the opportunity to be, to be a guest, and uh, thank you for this great conversation.
0: Thank you. And, and so uh, how can folks find you? Uh, through your website, through LinkedIn?
1: Yes, I'm um, on both. And I also have a Twitter handle, uh, jennycstevens.com, at jennycstevens.
0: And I'm also on LinkedIn. So yes, thank you. Fantastic. Thanks again. We'd like to thank Dr. Stevens for being with us today. Uh, If you liked what you heard, if anything in particular resonated with you, please shoot me an email at Tracy, that's T-R-A-C-I-E at traceabilitypodcast.com I'd love to hear from you the takeaway from today is to be part of the solution to use your purpose your passion your willingness to engage to be part of the solution and make this world a better place for all of us thanks again for listening bye-bye